will be people around the place who will question the wisdom of your decision. Uh, and there may even be some people here who still wonder what, quite what they have done. And I would just point out to you that, of course, nobody, no one party, no one person has a monopoly of wisdom. But if you look at the history of the last 200 years of this party's existence, you will see that it is we Conservatives who have had the best insights, I think, into human nature. They're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump, and people are saying that's a good thing, that they like me over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they need. It's been escalating, this crisis now, since the referendum. This is now the third Prime Minister. The issue simply has to be resolved. Donald Trump is just the figurehead of the rise of the far right again. Oh, hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I like Jane Mayer's piece in The New Yorker about Al Franken. All right, as little as I reflexively sympathize with the Me Too fallen it's interesting to hear them talk about their pain. I mean, I read John Gameshi in the New York Review of Books. I read John Hockenberry. And there's something very gonzo, almost at the limits of language, about the men who humiliated themselves, forfeiting their careers, their dignity, and their obituaries to their fixation on sexually dominating others. The brokenness in these men, I promise I'm not going to say it's poignant, but let's say it's dramatic. And they certainly show how patriarchy does a number on men as well as women, somehow getting middle-class schmoes like these guys to think they should throw off civilization and do their best to approximate Maasai warriors with their endless sex slaves, or at least Jeffrey Epstein. And then there's the fact that Franken resigned before there was an ethics hearing. If there's one thing I hate in our times, perhaps even more than that weird picture of Franken Hamily molesting Leanne Tweeden for the cameras— it's a thwarted investigation. If Franken had let a hearing proceed, we would have gotten to hear from the witnesses and, if need be, from Franken. We wouldn't be stuck with questions about whether he was right to resign or whether the other senators were right not to stand up for him. Every time we're denied an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh, into the death of Jamal Khashoggi, into Trump's Russia ties, into Trump's taxes and mob ties, we push our system deeper into dysfunction and paralysis and even illegitimacy. When we sweep stuff under the carpet, we allow conspiracy theories to grow metastatically. We grow terrified of questions. We start thinking even Kamala Harris or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asking questions of her colleagues is impertinent and dangerous. So for now, I fault Franken for resigning and essentially skipping his court date at the ethics panel, obstructing justice, more even than I fault him for taking the offending photo. And that's the thing I believe will haunt him. My guest today is Brian Kloss. Brian is an assistant professor in global politics at University College London, a columnist for The Washington Post, and the host of the new and very compelling Power Corrupts podcast. I'll be back with Brian in just a minute, but first, the tweets. Guatemala, which has been forming caravans and sending large numbers of people some with criminal records to the United States, has decided to break the deal they had with us on signing a necessary safe third agreement. We were ready to go. Now we are looking at ban, tariffs, remittance fees, and all of the above. Guatemala has not been good. Big U.S. taxpayer dollars going to them was cut off by me nine months ago. The Squad. 
is a very racist group of troublemakers who are young, inexperienced, and not very smart. They are pulling the once great Democratic Party far left and were against humanitarian aid to the border and are now against ICE and Homeland Security. So bad for our country. Highly conflicted Robert Mueller should not be given another bite of the apple. In the end, it will be bad for him and the phony Democrats in Congress who have done nothing but waste time on this ridiculous witch hunt. Result of the Mueller report, no collusion, no obstruction. But the question should be asked, why were all of Clinton's people given immunity? And why were the text messages of Peter S. and his lover, Lisa page, deleted and destroyed right after they left Mueller and after we requested them. This is illegal. Presidential harassment. Joining me on the line from London to talk about Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, and what's next is Brian Kloss. He's a professor, columnist, and recent recruit to the podcast Racket with his awesome Power Corrupts podcast. Welcome to Trumpcast, Brian. Thanks for having me on. So you were in London. Nothing happening there today. So it's just another day. Except you have a new prime minister. I'm sorry. I offer condolences. It is tough, to be honest. I mean, as an American living abroad in London, you just <laughs> you look on both sides of the Atlantic, look home, look here, and it's a train wreck everywhere you look. Do you remember when Andrew Sullivan used to talk about the moral and intellectual superiority of the, quote, Anglosphere? Indeed. Yeah. What a I, sad what a sad state of affairs we I, find ourselves I, in. I just I think I'll put it to him on Twitter as you know, what's going on with the Anglosphere right now. So Boris Johnson, how have you tracked his rise and at what point did you realize that this was inevitable, that he'd be prime minister? I think what's happening here is actually just a slight delay for what happened in the United States between, say, 2010 and 2016. Mm-hmm. And the analogy where I think it holds really true is how both the Republican Party and the Tories, the Conservative Party in the UK, have dealt with splinter movements within themselves. So in, in you know, 2009, 2010, after Obama was elected, there was the Tea Party movement in the UK, or sorry, in the US. And that forced the Republicans to co-opt all the crazies, the conspiracy theorists, the bigots, mm-hmm. rather than lose them. I think that that exact same parallel is happening right now in the UK, because first UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and now the Brexit Party have challenged the Tory party from the right, and they've made the exact same calculation, which is we'd rather embrace the crazies, embrace the conspiracy theorists, and embrace the clowns. And now they have a clown for prime minister, and so do we. (laughs) Yes. I mean, what's the move there? Sometimes I feel like it's just exhaustion. I think David Frum has talked on this show about how well it was part of the work of the, you know, center-right or of the straight-up Republican Party to quarantine and banish the David Dukes and the KKK adjacent and the Turner Diaries readers. It's been part of their work for a long time, either to (laughs) repress, as I think Max Buda said, that part of the party, that it has racism at the center, or I think a, a more positive reading by David Frum would be there's always a kind of militia tight group in the party on the left. It would be like the anti-vaxxers or, you know, cultists and people with guns or anarchists. 
that always need to be dealt with. But that takes a certain amount of cognitive energy to confront that ideology, to confront those big personalities, and to stem the tide of disinformation that stokes those parties. What do you think? I mean, how did the ordinary right, the uh, center right in England, end up ceding first lots of power, now virtually all the power, to the Brexiteers? I think that you're absolutely right that you have to sort of expend some energy to denounce these unsavory characters in every party. Mm-hmm. I, I think the difference is that, you know, you often have crazies in any political movement, but when they bubble up to the surface, that's when you have the moment to condemn them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when they become visible. And I think what's really different that's happening both in the Republican Party and in the Tories is that actually the leadership is, it's not like it's bubbling up from the right anymore. It's actually in the leadership, right? So like conspiracy theories are not just something that occasionally you hear tossed out like you did with John McCain and birtherism where he actively shut them down. Instead, you have it coming from the president. And Mm -hmm. the same is true in the Tory party now where you have a lot of very racist statements coming out of Boris Johnson uh, over the last several decades. He's fabricated a huge number of things in his career. He was famously fired as a journalist for making up quotes mm-hmm. many decades ago. In terms of political violence, where Trump you know, encouraged violence against a reporter or endorsed Greg Gianfort, for example, mm-hmm. the Montana congressman who body slammed the Guardian reporter Ben Jacobs, mm-hmm. Boris Johnson is on tape basically talking about hiring a hitman to beat up a journalist. Mm. So, you know, there's there's a series of parallels between these people, these two people. There's the narcissism, there's the racism, there is the absolute disregard for the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these things, you know, now are on both are are in power on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that's where the sort of both sides ism is really wrong that there, you you know, if, if, if there is violence against people on the right, for example, you don't have prominent members of uh, the Democratic Party constantly demonizing people with violent rhetoric where you say, you know, actually, I endorse this person because they attacked them like Trump did with Gene Ford. And that's where it's, you know, the, the differences are very, very stark in that regard. Yes. And now we've had, uh, well, a New Hampshireite, my home state, defending slavery. Um, he says people have owned people forever. I don't know if you've seen that. And, uh, and there's nothing racist about owning slaves. What a world, right? It's like you can't even accept with bipartisan endorsement that slavery is racist. I mean, it's just the most insane period of time we live in. Just moral common sense seems to have been defeated. I mean, it's interesting because populists are supposed to speak for kind of home truths. And these are so exotic, you know, the kind of not just the defiance of you know, really just stock baseline American values over here, but also just the positing of these Byzantine theories. I'll give you one example. We had Carol Cadwallader on this show, and you've probably heard her TED talk about Brexit, but, you know, she cites this town in Wales that has benefited in extraordinary ways from the EU. You know, it has these gleaming kind of palaces of education, museums, uh, you know, uh, highways, all of which have the EU mark on them. And yet they are very, very worried about a Turkish Muslim influx of immigrants, though they have no immigrants except one from Poland in the town. Like this is outlandish. It's also in terms of consequences, right? Like you have both with Trump and Brexit, the very people who are going to be most vulnerable to their policies or the fallout from the policy is the people who voted for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in the UK, there's this myth that after, quote unquote, taking back control from Brussels, 
that the areas that are blighted in northern England or in rural Wales are suddenly going to have this influx of foreign capital. It couldn't be further from the truth, right? Yeah. And so these jobs are not going to come back, and yet the people are cheering on the politicians that are ensuring that that will happen. And the same is true, of course, in, in the U.S., where the city, the, the rural communities that are most vulnerable, farm towns, for example, in my home state of Minnesota, where mm. the soybean farmers voted for Trump and, and, and then also voted for a Republican congressman, uh, in 2018, one of the few instances of a Democratic seat turning red in that race mm-hmm. was in the Southern District, in the first district in the Southern part of Minnesota, where the soybean farmers are getting completely hammered by yeah. the trade war, right? Yeah. Even though this this bailout is supposed to help them, it really hasn't. I've probably turned to this book too much on this show, but Albert O. Hirschman's book, The Passions and the Interests, comes to mind because we see a lot of voters acting against their interests, this sort of college essay writing, just good, you know, SAT getting group among us saying, how is it possible that so many people would vote against their interests? You know, the kind of porny piece about a guy chewing on a nail in West Virginia who still thinks Trump is a savior in spite of the fact that, you know, all evidence the contrary. But there is, you know, and I know you do global politics, there is a kind of counter history to the interest way of thinking about how people make decisions, which is they sometimes make decisions either on their passions or on a kind of almost death drive. We had Bandy Lee on the show, who's done the work on Trump's mental incompetence. She's a forensic psychiatrist at Yale. She pointed out that the counties that went for Trump have very high diseases of despair, so addiction, suicide, depression, and also that under Republican presidents, murder and suicide rates uh, practically double So it may be that why are they acting on their interests, you know, could be reframed as their interests are somewhat something very sinister, like dying or stultifying the process or something. What do you think? I think there is an absolute gut reaction that a lot of people who vote for Trump or voted for Brexit have. And I think the word that I think ties the two together is nostalgia, hmm. right? It's hmm. it's it's a nostalgia for a pre-globalized world. It's a nostalgia for a whiter world mm-hmm. with less racial and cultural diversity. And in Britain, that manifests itself partly also in sort of reasserting control because the UK used to have its, you know, the global British empire. In the US, the Make America Great Again is obviously a nostalgia tagline. And so I think, you know, the two of them are tapping into something that's very potent for older voters in particular. Mm -hmm. And there's a massive demographic divide in terms of age, both in the Trump base and in in terms of the um, Brexit voter, the stereotypical Brexit voter. And I think it's just this old timey sense. and, And this is where I think it's silly to try to divorce economic nationalism and racism, Mm -hmm. in a sense, to say, which one is it? I think in some ways it's both. It's a backlash against globalization for older people who used to remember what the world was like Mm pre-globalization. And they also remember that that time was whiter. And they remember that it was more, in their words, pure, right? Which is a very ugly thing to think about. But it's just, I think this is where when you get those, you know, send her back chants about... Um, the congresswoman that represents me, Ilhan Omar, you know, it taps into something very dark, but also very deep seated in the demographic base that Trump needs to turn out. And the same to a lesser extent, I think, is true with Brexit. Two things. One is nothing about Boris Johnson or Donald Trump conjures some lost past. Neither of them look to my eye like Churchill or Eisenhower or, you know, a kind of Mitt Romney, where you could say, you know, that those were the days when men stood upright and talked softly and carried a big stick or whatever. They look like 
outlandish Studio 54 reality stars. Like, they really look like the people that, by rights, conservatives would be decrying as insane. I mean, the fact that you call them clowns, it's, you know, I don't know if you saw the kind of separated at birth video of both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson with their wild bleached hair. I mean, I feel like I could make the argument from conservatives that this was like a crazy lefty thing. I mean, both of them have sexual peccadilloes or more than that, crimes in Trump's case, allegations. And they are disorganized. They don't make any sense when they talk. I mean, I don't know what the nostalgia is for here exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the nostalgia is necessarily for the the personality types. I think the yeah. personality types for some people actually go against the grain. I think some older people appreciate the decorum and don't appreciate the, tw- the tweets, right? But that being said, I think that they're, the combination of those two things is very dangerous because in the policy terms, you're actually tapping into something very deep. In the comical, outlandish clownishness, mm. you actually are able to get away with stuff that a serious politician could not, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments that I've made for a long time with Trump's authoritarian streak, which I think is very serious and, and we need to take very, very seriously, is that you know if he were Paul Ryan, if he were Mitch McConnell, people would take it seriously much more mm-hmm. and they would push back much more. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of question of is he joking when he talks about uh, you know a third or fourth term? Is he joking when he says the enemy of the people? Does he realize this is Stalinist rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Is it just sort of a cute thing? You know, Boris Johnson gets away with this stuff the same way mm. where his scandals end up being sort of amusing and they're also baked in the same way they are with Trump. And that means that accountability is that much harder because you sort of have this bumbling character, you know, character flaw that allows you to say, well, that's just Donald or wow, mm-hmm. that's just Boris. Mm-hmm. And and so I think, you know, the, the combination is what's particularly dangerous. I think it would actually be worse if you had... Uh, Sorry, I think it would actually be better or easier to fight if you had somebody who was a straight-laced politician behaving in exactly the same ways because the system functions much better when it deals with politicians who are the Mitt Romneys, the Paul Ryans, the Mitch McConnells of the world. I had a column in the LA Times last week about how we overestimate the size and power of Trump's base sort of at our peril. I mean, Trump has been exaggerating from the first day of his presidency how many supporters he has, how ardent they are, and seems to be unable to fill even modest auditoriums for his rallies. I was talking to someone who organized rallies for Clinton and Gore, and, you know, the idea that you would go into the reddest possible place. You know, Elizabeth Warren's going to red places for her rallies, but, you know, Trump scouts these things. And then still... The VIP section in Billings had three dissenters. The VIP section, you know, which is like supposed to be for the loyalists that think it's a real treat to be there. I mean, I, I realize that the polls say that he, he enjoys a certain amount of support, although it's historically low. But what do you say about the fact that Trump is a minority president, that, you know, he was the beneficiary of election hacking, and that it would be a mistake to misread the culture as moving hard right? I think that this is a backlash to the Obama presidency that has created the sort of the death gasp of this older, whiter America, right? I mean, I think that I'm still optimistic in both the UK and the US that things are going to change because demographics are changing. There are fewer fewer and fewer people who think this way. Mm -hmm. But this is going to be, 2020 is going to be a very important test of whether you can win the presidency with just a base, right? Mm -hmm. Because Trump is... 
the only president in modern history who has not tried in any concerted fashion to ever grow that base. Mm. Um, you know, he's never tried, made even the most cursory statements to reach out to conservative Democrats or independent voters. Mm -hmm. And his his plan is to double down on all this. And I think that's why you're going to have a very, very ugly 2020 campaign. But I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. He has this vanity about him where he needs crowd size. I mean, I once I crunched the numbers and I, I it's one of my favorite stats of the Trump presidency was that this is, you know, six months ago. So the numbers are slightly different, but he had tweeted about crowd size 252 times wow. and about ratings nearly 300 times and had only tweeted about human rights three times. And one of those was to make fun of them. So, Ugh. you know, it's, it gives you a sense of his priorities yeah. and that's why he's going into these deep red states where he thinks he can get video of crowds snaking around the auditorium. Yeah. And talks about them. And we don't know about him paying crowds since then, but we know that he paid actors $50 a pop to cheer when he announced he was running for president 2015. Um, so it's definitely not, um, I think we can agree. It would be beneath him or beneath the campaign to pay for it. And also, another thing I've probably oversighted on this show is Gary Kasparov saying, you know, look to not what the tyrant does, but what he fears. And with Trump and his surrogates saying over and over again how much support he has, exaggerating it in a ridiculous way, Brad Parscale saying he had 20,000 people at the recent rally when he had eight and the auditorium only held eight. So when you say 20,000, you, and it's, a, it's such a specific number, and it's only going to be debunked, there's an expression of fear. And, and Putin panics in the same way. He says he has 70% support. He crushes satirists. He puts down protesters. You know, the idea that the people, the people hate him. I mean, many people hate him, and many people hate Donald Trump. You know, it's right after he said he had the biggest inauguration in American history, period. There was the actual biggest world historical global protest, much of it directed at Donald Trump in the form of the Women's March on the first day. I mean, we've never had a president who's so hated. The bizarre thing about the fixation on the crowds, too, is right. Like in a, in a country of 330 million people, when you're the most important person in that country, like the idea that you wouldn't fill out an auditorium is bizarre. Yes. It's not like it's not like some feather in your cap, right? Like you're you you are literally the most important person on the planet or the most powerful person on the planet who is constantly talked about no matter where you go on earth. And you're boasting about being able to fill an 8,000 person auditorium in your most supportive state. I mean, this is it's it's just so bizarre to fixate on these things when there's so much business that needs to be done. And this is, I think, when you look back on the Trump presidency, some of the stuff that's really going to stand out is just how little work he did and how little even effort he tried to make it look like he was doing work. I mean, the the constant tweets about crowd size are just so bizarre and I think in history, people are going to be baffled by how this was not, you know, rebuked earlier by his own party or by voters, because he's still I mean, the thing that's very depressing and this is something I think we have to acknowledge is he's going to get, you know, tens of millions of votes next year by people who want more and more of this. And, and I think historically, people are going to be very, very confused by why that is. Yeah, I think that's right. I keep thinking, you know, we're in the middle of one of those moments in history that is almost inevitably going to be referred to as a shameful chapter in American history. And yet many of us seem to be gunning it to the end. I don't want to see museums built at the border or Steven Spielberg movies about this time if they're not if there's not the activism to stop it right now. I don't even know what it feels like to be 
Nancy Pelosi. I can't imagine. I mean, unless you're just keeping your eye just one step ahead of you or doing what you've routinely done, what you've habitually done, because it would take too much disruption to really, you know, even take the step that Justin Amash took in leaving the party. One of the things that I've thought about a lot in in this presidency is how much catastrophic risk there is in a way that is uh, is unusual for American presidents. So, I mean, there's always serious risk for the president. Mm -hmm. But with Trump, there is, you know, so many different balls in the air that he's juggling that Mm -hmm. all could go very, very wrong Mm -hmm. and all of his own making. Right. I mean, you have the crisis in Iran, you have China, you have him yesterday threatening to nuke Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff comes up at a time where, you know, the true risks, the very dangerous things of the Trump presidency have thankfully not been realized yet, but they're out there. And so, you know, one of the 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 nuclear weapons stuff is one that I think about quite a lot. I mean, this is something where you have Trump in control, sole control of the nuclear arsenal for the United States. Mm -hmm. Now you have Boris Johnson, and this is something that I think is is a it's a little known fact about the UK system. But to literally today or tomorrow, Boris Johnson will be sitting down and filling out something called the letters of last resort, which are handwritten letters to the captains of the four Trident nuclear submarines, which are the British nuclear deterrent, mm-hmm. with instructions for what to do if if Britain is attacked with a nuclear weapon, whether to retaliate or not. He's literally doing that today. With it's the first thing you do oh, when you become uh-huh. prime minister. Okay. This is one of my um, my podcast episode this week is about this, and so mm-hmm. it's this. It's I, I spoke to these people who are in the room, and it's the most sobering thing you can imagine, right? Literally giving decisions or making decisions about what to ha- what you should do in the instance of a nuclear attack. And Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are the two people who are most consequentially in charge of nuclear weapons on either side of the Atlantic. I mean, it's just that's where you start to say, okay, all this stuff about crowds and Fox and all of Trump's little neuroses Mm -hmm. are just so unimportant given how much power and how much destruction he, he could possibly wield as he continually chips away at Democratic norms, Democratic checks and continues to be generally unhinged in the White House. Yeah. Well, we have Mueller tomorrow. By the way, the legislature and the judiciary have let us down or seem to be languishing or somehow passive, and the executive branch has been hijacked. I do still, at the risk of sounding uh, cliched, I I do still park my faith in the American people, you know, who went um, overwhelmingly for for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and who do things like this Nashville group that prevented one of the ICE arrests two days ago and the protests against the borders. I continue to believe that the majority of Americans, forget about being good people, really object to this president and this disruption. And, you know, it may come down to that, to us. I assume you're still voting here. I am. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, I vote absentee. And and, and, I, and I think you're right. I mean, I think this is why the charge for the Democratic candidate, whoever it is next year, is to make the election, you know, partly about a vision for a future that involves things like health care and policy change. But a significant part of that message has to be about who we are as a country, mm-hmm. our values, the fundamental things we stand for. And also this third part, which is can we really deal with this for another four years? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, can, not not just the, the catastrophic risk and the damage it's doing to our allies and that those relationships, those alliances, but also can we just stomach four more years of how crazy this has been, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there, for most people, it is actually a winning message to say, you won't have to think about politics yes. every day and worry about this every day, right? I mean, you just can get get on with your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And yeah. I think the Democratic candidates have to make it about policy, about values, and about normalcy in some ways. 
I went to St. Petersburg for the first and only time in 1996. I wanted to talk, of course, to people then my age about their experience of the Cold War. And so many of them just kept saying, um, it just wasn't normal. It wasn't normal. You know, and they had grown up under communism, but they had some idea still in their heads or in the literature or that they could experience something as not normal, even without an idea of what those norms should be. If we believe at all in democracy and market capitalism, we believe that they're synced fairly well with what's adaptive in the Anglosphere and beyond, what works to keep us alive. I think we will hit a natural wall with this when Fox News cultists and others realize this is a, it's counter-adaptive to adopt these beliefs. It alienates you from other people. It spikes cortisol. It hurts your life. And, you know, we're in a, a two constitutional crises right now, a national emergency. It will hurt the nation. For the average person, I think you're absolutely right that there's a sense that we've lost what's normal. Yeah. But I do think that the average person is going to start seeing some serious harms of the destabilization mm -hmm. that Trump is creating around the world and mm -hmm. also at home. Yeah. The, the risk is, and this is this is the risk that I think Trump is banking on, is that he might be able to stick us with the bill after November 2020, right? Just the way that he stuffed everybody yeah. or stiffed everybody who he you know, would hire when he was a businessman. Right. I think he's hoping that he can get away with it long enough to either get reelected or to leave office and not have to deal with it. Yeah. And I think that's where you know the real dangers of this presidency are things that are going to have long-term consequences. So you know, mm -hmm. th one of the challenges when you talk about, for example, being in the UK and, and, and seeing how people think about the United States over here now, mm -hmm. which is different from when I, when I moved to the UK eight years ago, uh, you know, sort of as a benevolent friend in the Obama years and now something that you've got to hedge against because it might be a strategic enemy to the UK in the long term. That is not something that's going to happen tomorrow, right? The UK government mm -hmm. is not going to downgrade its alliance with the US tomorrow, mm -hmm. but it might in five years. Mm -hmm. and, and that will be put in motion today, mm -hmm. right? So so I, these are like very slow moving ships that Trump is is maneuvering. And, you know, the risk is that as voters, we don't wake up to the fact that those those things are happening until... It's too late. And that that's where I really hope that the Democratic candidate next year is very laser focused on explaining how these things are changing, the consequences of them, the risks to normal people, and the vision of how it can be much better with a quote unquote normal president that actually solves problems rather than just starts fights on Twitter. I want to talk about legitimacy because you've written a lot about the last election and I see you seconding Paul Waldman's terrific column about Trump's engine of chaos is a great expression that Waldman suggests is going to define Trump's 2020 reelection campaign. Boris Johnson, do you think he's a legitimate leader? I mean, do you think England is accustomed in the monarchy to having periodic legitimacy reviews? You know, I think the cognitive dissonance that the people have in this country after George Bush's election and, and Donald Trump's election, where you're not allowed to say he lost the Electoral College, that's being a sore loser, and you're not allowed to say that the evidence shows that disinformation did affect the outcome of the vote, and some of that is related to the DNC hack. So, so just cheating. Bringing up voter suppression is also supposedly whining about your loss. But He's under a cloud, and there's a nagging sense that democracy failed in 2016 and that the wishes of the people were not respected, and we have a minority president. Do you, do you think the same thing is true with Boris Johnson? 
Yeah. So, I mean, Johnson was elected today by just the conservative party membership, which is a pool of 160,000 people in a country of 65 million. And he got a little more than 90,000 votes. So 90,000 people who are members of the Tory party decided who the prime minister is. Now, that's a system that exists in some parliamentary democracies. Mm -hmm. But in terms of trying to get a mandate to go and negotiate with Brussels for a Brexit agreement that will shape the way the UK is set up for literally generations, mm -hmm. there should have been a general election. I think it would have been a much smarter move for the country. Yep. Um, and instead you have, I mean, it makes, you know, Trump Trump lost by a few million votes. I mean, there, there weren't even millions of people consulted. As, as I say, 160,000 Tory members voted. With Trump, I mean, I think the thing that's really difficult is that it is not simply, you know, sour grapes or, you know, crying foul to point out genuine flaws with American democracy. They're real. Um, voter suppression is real. I mean, it is something where there is good academic evidence in political science that shows that if you are African-American in the United States, the odds that you will have to wait in line for more than an hour at the polls is significantly higher, right. between four and six times higher in, in, in some articles that I've read, for example. And the odds that you'll have to wait in line two hours or more is, is much higher than that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously true that that exists and it has racial uh, targeting embedded in it. Mm -hmm. Gerrymandering, which is not important for the presidential, but is important for how Congress functions. Mm -hmm. Most analyses say between five and 20 more Republican House seats were gained via gerrymandering in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. That's almost the entire majority if it's on the higher end mm -hmm. for what the House had in 2016. Um, and then, you know, you also have the aspects of disinformation and hacking. And, you know, the fact that Trump mentioned WikiLeaks, I believe it was 142 times yeah. the final month of the campaign, tells you everything you need to know about how important he thought that was. Mm -hmm. And the odds that it did not affect 80,000 votes in three states, I think that's very, very unlikely that the constant drumbeat of WikiLeaks, the stories that then came out of that in mainstream publications, plus the disinformation that was going online, mm -hmm. all of it was designed to affect votes. It certainly did. It's impossible to quantify exactly how much, but the idea that it affected it in no way whatsoever in a razor-thin margin, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty silly. So the problem for 2020 is that the attacks are likely to be much more aggressive. They've been invited by Donald Trump now. He has rolled out the red carpet to people by saying he would accept help from the Kremlin in previous remarks that he sort of walked mm -hmm. back, but everybody knew there was a wink there. Mm -hmm. And you're also going to have copycats, right? Domestic copycats who now understand the Kremlin playbook. You're going to have other adversaries getting involved. And eventually, we're also going to have allies, I think, trying to influence our elections because they're going to figure, why are we going to let you know Russia and China, Iran manipulate our alliance we're going to need to get in on the game, too. So, you know, it's this open season on our elections simply because there has been absolute appeasement in the wake of the 2016 attacks. Yeah. Do you think we can expect anything from Mueller? I mean, do you think any enthusiasm for impeachment might build or are you feeling fairly conservative about what it will change? Well, what I hope it will change and if the Democrats do their job, what it must change is that Trump will stop saying no obstruction, no collusion. Mm -hmm. Because the, the report clearly says that there were 10 alleged acts of obstruction of justice following on from a series of moronic botched attempts to collude with the Kremlin. And the fact that they failed does not make them any less serious, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we don't think that attempted murder is somehow not serious simply because somebody didn't die and attempted collusion simply because you had Don Jr. trying to pull it off and, mm -hmm. and botched it yeah. doesn't make it less serious that he tried and invited the attack or that Trump, you know, specifically said on on public TV, you know, on, on TV to say, 
you know, please uh, attack Hillary Clinton's emails and hack her. So I think that Mueller needs to be very clear that the no obstruction, no collusion is just patently false. I also wish, I mean, I think something that's just being laid bare about many of the aspects of our political discourse is that the decorum and the sort of read between the lines speak that Mueller has in that report is not equipped for a, twi- a Twitter president. Yeah, and, that's right. And he should speak plainly. You know, I, I, I've, th- I've thought this for a long time about people who mm-hmm. leave the administration as well, whether it's, you know, Rex Tillerson or Jim Mattis that they need to go on to Fox News and speak in simple language about how ignorant the president is about basic aspects of global affairs. Mm-hmm. Mueller should be speaking about these things in very plain language that is impossible to edit for Fox News that says this man is unfit to be president and that the way that he conducted himself would land him in jail were he not the president. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm I'm not terribly hopeful given how reticent Mueller has been to to get into the partisan fray that he will make such a blunt statement. But I think it's his duty in the position he has been appointed to, to not mince words. And I hope Democrats avoid the grandstanding and try to extract those type of statements from Mueller on the stand. I absolutely agree. My guest today has been Brian Kloss. He teaches at the University College London, writes a column for The Washington Post, and has an amazing podcast you got to listen to called Power Corrupts. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? At Trumpcast, we hang out on Twitter far too much. So find us. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus, and you know what I'm going to say, become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day, and yes, I'm trying to shame you. Plus members, get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That is camel dollars a day. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob, the best team in podcasting. John D. Domenico, as usual, is our voice of Donald Trump, and he's the best voice of Donald Trump, let's face it. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Before I got to Washington, no one even knew who Robert Mueller was. They were Robert Mueller who? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? But as soon as I got here, everyone knew his name. The only reason that you know who Robert Mueller is is because of me. I made Robert Mueller and I will unmake Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller is totally conflicted. He came to my office and begged me. Beg me for a better parking spot. I said no.